What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another live stream. My name is Ansel Linder. This is Bitcoin and Markets. So uh, today is November 9th, 2022, and Florida is under another hurricane warning. <laughs> they canceled school tomorrow. I can't believe it. Like, of course, you know, when the there's that joke about when you were uh, when your parents were kids, they had to walk both ways to school and home uphill in three feet of snow and all this stuff. But literally that's the truth. I, I can't believe that they get off school for such minor things. We're supposed to get 20 mile an hour winds and some, some thunderstorms is it. So I can't believe they're canceling school. I guess they're, they're doing it because our County is uh, with a lot of coastline and there's some lower lying areas. They think there might be flooding and things like that. So, okay, I get it, but come on now. We're just supposed to get a little bit of rain. Anyway, I hope you guys are well, wherever you are in the world. I know uh, on Telegram, we have people from South America and Europe. So um, hope you guys are doing well. Today's live stream, I'm going to cover a couple things about FTX uh, some charts, macro charts, like I always do, Ukraine, and a different way to look at the elections uh, that happened in the United States. I'll touch on some of the election stuff. And then we're going to finish up with China. So big macro whirlwind today. Um, of course, if you're just listening for the first time on Twitter Spaces, um, you can join the Telegram at t.me forward slash Bitcoin and markets. Uh, I started this podcast back in May of 2016 during kind of the buildup into the Segwit uh, scaling conflict. And it started as a real hardcore Bitcoin channel where I talked about the economics of everything because that's my degrees in economics. But as Bitcoin has evolved and as I have been in the space for a longer period of time, I've been able to draw on some other experience. So the my other experiences in um, the military with command and control and kind of uh, mission planning and intelligence gathering and stuff. And that, I think that works its way into, uh, you know, match matches with economics into a uh, kind of global geopolitical view. So my, my show has evolved over the last couple of years. And of course I do FedWatch. Uh, I do FedWatch every Wednesday on Bitcoin Magazine's live stream at 3 p.m. Eastern time, except this week. Uh, this will be the second week, I think, in like two months that we've we've had to skip. So the producer of the show, he is out of town, and so they're, they're not doing their normal live streams, and they said, hey, we'll just skip this week. So I'm going to try. Of course, I do these live streams five days a week. I also have my own podcast feed. You guys can just search Bitcoin and Markets anywhere to find that. Uh, but I'm, I'm going to be trying to do some extra content, maybe write an extra article for Bitcoin Magazine this this week and see how that goes. I haven't uh, started anything, but there's it, the macro world is rife right now with content. So I should be able to find something to write about. All right. Also, yeah. So go uh, subscribe to Bitcoin and Markets on the podcast feed. It's in pretty much every podcast app. Uh, if you like this show uh, today, then please go give me a rating on iTunes uh, to rate the podcast. Also, I recently lost my YouTube channel, uh, but I am up on Rumble. 
I'm trying to get that up and going. I can't live stream on Rumble yet. I think you have to have a certain amount of subscribers and it's pretty much a brand new channel. So uh, I think it's a hundred subs, maybe it's 200 or something there. there maybe it's a thousand. I don't know, but you have to get to some, some uh, certain amount of subs before you can start live streaming. And I will try to do that along with this. Maybe if, if we get the rumble channel built up, so go to rumble uh, search for Bitcoin and markets and subscribe. Of course, all of these links will be in the show notes uh, for all these live streams now that I'm putting out on the podcast app, apps and uh, the podcast feed, sorry, and Rumble. I do an in-depth show notes on my website, bitcoinandmarkets.com. And this is episode 259. So just bitcoinandmarkets.com forward slash E259. And you can find the all the charts I talk about, all the links. I try to make a real in-depth show notes for each episode. So check that out. Also, you can sign up for my free weekly newsletter when you go to BitcoinandMarkets.com. All right. So let's jump into this FTX stuff. Of course, I've talked about this in the past, and this is really the big story in Bitcoin um, of the last couple months. And so everybody, I'm sure, listening has been following what is going on. Um, some developments out this morning that I think maybe fewer people have uh, are aware of is that just in the last hour, I believe, CZ or Coindesk reported that CZ is probably going to back out of this FTX deal because he looked at their books and it's such a disaster. It sounds it sounds a whole lot like Elon Musk and Twitter, right? So we'll see how this develops. Um, I don't think there's been anything signed. You know, I don't know exactly what the legal liabilities are here for this, but um, it does look like CZ might be backing out of this deal. Interesting development. Another development for FTX is that it's being reported that the U.S., um, I guess, regulators are looking into the FTX saga. And if you go back to Celsius and Luna, there was a lot, uh, you know, in the weeks following that debacle, there was a, a lot of talk about regulation. You heard people like Elizabeth Warren and you heard other no coiners uh, or never coiners. I don't know what to call them, uh, Bitcoin enemies, enemies of Bitcoin. They, they were talking about uh, all this regulation that we need to regulate, regulate, regulate. Well, if they're probing into this FTX thing, my God, there is about to be a whirlwind of talk about regulation. Um, I do expect stable coins to be regulated in the United States probably in the next 12 months. Depends on what happens with the market. I mean, if the market keeps going down for another six months to 12 months, which would be extremely painful. But if it does do that, uh, you know, there will be less need to regulate, less incentive to regulate. But if we do bottom here and Bitcoin starts going back up and Tether and the stable coins start picking back up, um, then there will be more incentive to regulate. Of course, a lot of the demand for stable coins comes from trading and comes from arbitrage and comes from these other things. Um, use with the scam chains, uh, use with these altcoins, use with these large uh, VC funds that s seem to be getting wrecked here 
really, really badly. And so maybe the demand, the overall demand for these stable coins will go down uh, in the near term. So that will be also interesting. I've seen a few algorithmic stable coins, I think, um, start losing their peg over the last 24 hours. Tether, I thought it was funny, Colorado Travis, which is, he's one of the biggest uh, Bitcoin skeptics on Twitter, at least that I follow. I like to follow, uh, try to follow some opposing opinions from myself. And he's one that I I, I do follow. And he tweeted out when <laughs> Tether's peg was like 99.9 cents. <laughs> And he said, like, oh, this is bad. Uh, come on, man. Uh, I don't I don't think Tether is in any trouble here at all. Of course, these smaller stable coins will be in trouble. And this whole situation is going to invite stable coin regulation. I mean, is that a good thing or bad thing? I wrote this morning on Telegram that I think it's kind of good, okay? Um, it's – I don't like regulation, obviously, but – it's coming, right? The, what can be regulated will be regulated. And it's, it's might as well get it over with and pull the bandaid off. Um, and also it, there's some benefits to this. So when stable coins get regulated, I think it's going to, I said on Telegram, it's going to drive this definitional wedge deeper between Bitcoin and crypto. And I think that's extremely, extremely important. Because one thing that's really holding Bitcoin back is the substitution effect uh, with these altcoins. And it, it's not a, um, obviously, it's not a one-to-one. We all know that it's not real. It's not a real substitution. Uh, they're different things, uh, scam and Bitcoin. But to the layman, they are talked about as the same thing, okay? And that is not good for Bitcoin's fundamentals um the in the quest towards monetization you you have to secure this scarcity aspect of it and you know this has been an attack vector a narrative attack vector on bitcoin for a very long period of time gold bugs would say you know they're they're this unlimited this not 21 million it's unlimited because look you have bcash and you have ethereum and you have etc xyz and of course, we can say, no, 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 no. Like copper is not a substitute for gold. Just because there's something else like it doesn't mean that it's a substitute. But for the layman right now, it is a substitute. So we need to drive that definitional wedge right through between crypto and Bitcoin. And I think that regulating stable coins would help do that. Um, also, it creates stability in the altcoin sector. So one thing that has plagued Bitcoin, well, maybe it's plagued Bitcoin, maybe it's just the natural evolution of how things get monetized. But is it's these uh, credit cycles within Bitcoin or scam cycles within the Bitcoin industry. So Bitcoin came, comes first and you have all these clones and all these people that are scamming in Bitcoin's shadow trying to use decentralization and use blockchain and and use smart contracts all these things that started with bitcoin as marketing tools right and it drove it drives this this uh, boom bust cycle in bitcoin and that boom bust cycle even though each time it goes to higher highs 
and higher lows, it still subconsciously um, makes the space look bad to these outside investors. And remember, my position, my thesis here is that we need large pools of the large pools of capital to come into Bitcoin. That that's the next big group of people to come in. Um, I I think it's great that there's stuff like El Salvador. I think there's great. There's stuff like uh, initiatives in Africa and uh, with poor people around the world. I think that's great, but they're not really going to move the needle in adoption. Uh, So we need the big, large pools of money to come in to move adoption. Um, That's, that's how these technologies are always adopted. Usually, right. They're adopted by, they're usually expensive in the beginning. Unlike Bitcoin, it's kind of the reverse for the valuation of these things. But um, the large pools of money, the, the elites will adopt adopt a technology. You know, like think about TVs when they came out; they were uh, very expensive things, and now you can get this, you know, a huge fifty-inch flat screen for one hundred fifty dollars. I mean, it's it's crazy how much the prices have fallen for all this. But it starts with the adoption of uh, as a luxury item. And so Bitcoin needs to, it's, it's not a luxury item, but it needs to be adopted by those same pools of people to start working its way in the economy. And if you've listened to my content for a while now, you know, you know that my position on that. So um, where was I? The, so the stability in the sector of regulating stable coins and regulating these altcoins, I think is going to attract these be a more of an attractant at least towards these large pools of capital. And I think obviously that's a, that's a good thing. And lastly, another good aspect of regulating stable coins is that it will kind of, it will really affect the drive towards CBDCs because we know the ECB wants it. Um, and we know the fed does not want a CBDC. And if the fed regulates cbdc's maybe even having uh or uh, regulate stable coins maybe even having stable coin reserves held at the federal reserve in you know in their accounts at the federal reserve that would negate the whole need for any sort of cbdc um and i think that's that's also a good thing to push back against the globalist narratives and because wrapped up in cbdc's is not just like competition to Bitcoin, it's also like the globalist plans for the world with um, uh, with ESG and all this stuff. It's all wrapped up into one here, and CBDC is is a big part of that package, the globalist package. So if we can defeat CBDCs, that's it's like defeating the globalists. But anyways, um, so that was something else that came out of this FTX. Uh, debacle over the last 24 hours. All right. Um, let's look at a few charts. I don't think I posted anything in Telegram this morning, but I'm going to do that now. Again, if you want to join, if you're listening on Spaces, we got quite a few people in here. If you want to listen on uh, Telegram, t.me forward slash Bitcoin and Markets, at the end of these episodes, I open it, open it up for people on Telegram to make any comments or ask a question, whatever they want to do. But okay, let's start posting some charts. This is the Bitcoin one hour chart. And man, oh man, guys, it just looks sick. It is not good. Um, 
not good at all. I was going back and forth with uh, some people here this morning. Let me pull up that conversation. Sorry about this. One second. Nope, that's the wrong one. Oh, boy. Where was this? Oh, here we go. Um, so it was Dave S. Are you here in the live stream? Let me check here. Dave is not in the live stream, but uh, he asked, you know, are are we at the bottom? Uh, is this dip over with? And I don't think so. I, I unless we get a bounce, right? Obviously, unless we get a bounce, <laughs> that's that goes without saying. But if you look back in August, I think it's mid-August, we had this dip, and then it went sideways. It was actually a, a very, very similar dip in percentage terms. It was also a very uh, similar dip in RSI terms from nearly oversold to nearly, or sorry, nearly overbought to nearly oversold on the daily. And then it went sideways. So if this, if this market goes sideways from here, or even trickles down like it's doing right now, there seems to be no, no bid in, in the market. But if it goes sideways here for the next week, most likely we're going lower. We won't, we won't uh, be able to say that this dip is done until I think we pass back above 20,000. Uh, that would be a good sign that this is over. But right now, a, a bounce does not look good in the near term. Um, I think we could possibly go sideways or lower over the next few days into the weekend, uh, and we'll see. Of course, weekends have been very, very slow. Uh, for Bitcoin, the Bitcoin price, uh, not very many gaps have been opened up on futures, you know, the CME futures and stuff like that. Uh, so if, if we make it sideways to slightly down going into the weekend, we'll probably be sideways through the weekend. And then we'll see what happens Sunday night into Monday when the futures market opens back up. But um, yeah, right now it does look like it could go lower. Now, I'm not in the camp where I think there's going to be some cascade effects. Okay, like we had this huge player FTX go and solve it. And what did we see? We saw a 10% dip in price. If you go back, you know, to Mt. Gox or you go back even more recently than that, uh, when these large exchanges failed, we would see a 25 to 50% drop in price. And now we had just a 10% drop yesterday. So there is some stability here in Bitcoin. I'm actually surprised that it held up as well as it has with all of this drama going on. So, um, yes, we hit new lows. That's not a good thing, but it, it's still holding up. Um, look, we hit this about this price back in June. How many months ago was that? June, July, August, September, October, November. Five months ago? Over four months ago. And we're still here. So to me, that, that says you know, Bitcoin is, is quite strong on this. Um, of course, there's been a lot of comparisons between this descending triangle and the descending triangle that we saw back in 2018 in the middle of that bear market where the price you know, fell out from 6,000 down to 3,000. So there we have a 50% drop, but now we have a 10% drop. So 
we'll see. We'll see how this develops over the next few days. Um, but again, I am a permable, but I do think that we're close to the bottom. I just don't know who's selling. I know that these maybe FTX has to sell, but there's I think there's plenty of dip buyers here, and that should hold up the price. Anyway, okay. Uh, what else for macro do we have? Uh, let's take a look at one of my favorite topics on the channel here, and this is the oil price. Of course, everybody thinks everybody thinks oil is going higher. Pretty much across the board in Bitcoin, across the board in alternative macro space, everybody thinks oil is going higher. And I'm the lone voice <laughs> saying that oil is going lower, or at least it's going to be range bound here because, you know, yes, of course, we released some oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, but the Strategic Petroleum Reserve does not mean what it meant in the 80s. We are now a net energy exporter. So it, it means something completely different than it did back then. It's not nearly as important. Um also, we're going into a global recession, which we'll get to this with uh, China. Um, demand for oil is slowing globally. And each year, technology improvements, um, infrastructure improvements, efficiency gains, you know, oil becomes cheaper to produce per barrel. But over the next year or two, we're going to have this re uh, global recession that demand is going to go down. So I, I can see that the net change here to the oil market is going to be flat to down versus what most people see out there that somehow there's some imbalance in demand and oil should not be trading at $86. For some reason, some market manipulation, see, they always go back to market manipulation too. When, they, when markets are irrational, they always jump to being irrational or manipulated. Instead of looking at it and being like, well, what does this price tell me? <laughs> this price tells me that there's, you know, supply right now is fine compared to demand. And I don't see any reason why it needs to go to $300 a barrel. I think that's crazy. Okay. Um, did I post that chart? No. Let me post the chart here. I think I posted it this morning, but I'll post it again in Telegram. That's the oil. Oh, wait, I posted, damn, I posted in the wrong wrong uh, room. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, what else do we have? Let's let, take a look at the dollar, 110, spot two for the price. And it is not, uh, I mean, it's up slightly today, but not in a significant way. Uh, dollar strength seems to be waning here. Which, if you listen to my stuff, you know that's my position. The euro is barely over par, holding on to par. The yen is slightly weaker today. Uh, Chinese yuan is slightly weaker over the last couple of days, but um, it is off of its weakest point, which was back on November 1st. So back then it was 7.32 yuan per the dollar, and now we're sitting at 7.24 yuan per dollar. Hong Kong dollar is still right up there at the peg, 7.85. Um, doesn't look like super stressful right now. It's a few ticks below the, the top, 
uh, but it has been stuck up there for now two or three months, and this has to be draining their FX reserves over there in um, Hong Kong, so I will be watching that like a hawk as well. What else we have? How about stocks? This will be the last one. And I look at the S&P 500. I'll post this. Slightly red on the day, but nothing near Bitcoin. And, you know, Bitcoin and stocks have been correlated very closely over the last year. Um, A few times, though, in the last couple months, we've seen them not agree. So first we had uh, the stocks. I think it was in July. Stocks really rallied where Bitcoin held back, then stocks caught back down to where Bitcoin is. Um, and then we saw Bitcoin starting to rally just in the last couple of weeks and stocks not following. Um, and then Bitcoin caught back down with stocks. So it's kind of an interesting relationship right now, but stocks are holding up right now, of course, unlike Bitcoin with the, with all the industry problems. So all right, that those have all been posted into Telegram. And what do we have coming up next? Okay, let's talk about Ukraine and the U.S. elections. All right, so um, first off, the U.S. elections, the red wave that I've been talking about for a few days has really, it, it kind of, it didn't materialize. It was more like a, I said, a solid swell. So there, there was some changes in the voting demographics here in the United States where The rural voters didn't really turn out as much as uh, people were thinking and as much as the pollsters were saying um, or concluding, I guess, that um, rural voters were going to get out. And of course, these rural voters are these Trump voters, the the conservative voters. And um, instead, what happened was there was a shift in the voting uh, demographics for conservatives, and they got a lot more Hispanics and they got a lot more uh, of suburbia. So even though the rural voter didn't show up as they thought they were going to, there was this huge influx into the Republican party of, uh, suburban women, mainly suburban women and, uh, Hispanics. So that's interesting. That was enough to win. Um, I think they'll end up winning, um, all the still contested Senate seats, Uh, to get a majority in the Senate of, I think, 52 or 53, and the House, uh, also a majority for the uh, Republicans. So they're going to be a split government between Republican Congress and, of course, the globalist Democrat presidency. So what that means for Ukraine, uh, just recently, within the last 24 to 48 hours as well, there have been an in, there's an increased chatter out there about negotiations between Ukraine and Russia. And in the past where, uh, well, Ukraine is still saying they, they really, they won't settle for anything except complete return of all of their territory that they've now lost. Um, the U S apparently is talking back channel with Russian, uh, diplomats. So, This uh, looks like there could be some shift here. And I think this is driven by this shift in the Congress. So now there's not going to be funding. Most likely there won't be as much funding, at least. Um, There could be other types of investigations. So that instead of having a J6 committee, now you have a Hunter Biden committee. And uh, 
looking into all of these past dealings with the Ukrainian government and, and all this stuff. And maybe they don't want that, right? Maybe the, the Biden White House doesn't want that. So they would have to give an inch on the Ukraine stuff. Um, so that that's interesting. There's also been some slight developments around some of the battlefields in Ukraine. Uh, you know, the Russian mobilization is over. And so they're, um, or is done, I, sh I should say. And they are now deploying to the front lines. And there is some marginal movement um, in favor of the Russians on the front lines, specifically around uh, the town of Bakhmut. What else? Um, and in this last 24 hours, there's also been another kind of purging of some of the officials in Ukraine. So Zelensky has been um, busy making sure that he doesn't have any people around him that are telling him to negotiate, right? He wants to have hardliners around him because they don't want to negotiate. And um, so there's been some movement in personnel in Ukraine as well over the last 24 to 48 hours. So that's what I know about the Ukraine situation. It looks like it could be um, moving you know, it's unfrozen and unlocked in the negotiation diplomacy channel. And we could see maybe some developments in on that front. But this conflict between NATO and Russia has been spilling over. So I've reported here a little bit about Haiti and the situation going on in Haiti. There seems to be two opposing um, sides here as well with the U.S. and Russia. Um I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes to a, a brief about that, but um, I don't I don't want to go into it here. The mo the latest thing is Serbia. So Serbia is not allied with Russia, but they are neutral at least to Russia. They don't want to take sides against the U.S. or against Russia. They want to do what's best for Serbia. But there seems to be some sort of uh, micro conflict that's building up here with some uh, police forces around the borders of Serbia and stuff. I linked in Telegram to a kind of a summary video for what's going on in Serbia, but this is also another flashpoint uh, around this one, much closer, obviously, to Ukraine. But uh, this, this conflict seems to be spreading in these micro conflicts around the globe and it really starts to seem a little bit like spreading of nuclear war. Now, I'm not saying that this is happening, but this is how the it become or not nuclear war. Sorry, uh, Jesus, uh, world war. So this is how it starts, right? It's um, starts in one area and it starts spilling over into other um, related things, but far away on the other side of the world. And that's what we're seeing kind of in Haiti and Serbia. So I don't like seeing that. Um, I hope these the diplomatic channels that have been opened up here in the last 48 hours continue to go that way. I just want to see this conflict come to an end. All right. So that's what I have to say about Ukraine and how the U S elections kind of tie into that whole situation. All right. Now, last thing for today is a thread, a couple threads by Michael Pettis. I've read him a few times here on the show and He's a must-follow, Michael X. Pettis, on Twitter. Of course, I'll link to these threads in the show notes, and I did link them this morning in Telegram. Uh, the first one is just four tweets, so I'll read it out here. 
he says, uh, he's quoting an article from the Financial Times, quote, the weakness in producer prices was driven in large part. OK, before I start this, he's a China analyst. All right. He is uh, an economist that lives and teaches in China. So all, all this is about China. Um, the weakness in producer prices was driven in large part by declining global commodity prices compared with last year, economists said. But they added that the data also reflected pressure on demand across the Chinese economy. All right. And so that's the end of quote. This is why, contrary to the expectations of some analysts, countries like China cannot replace their USD reserves with additional holdings of energy and industrial commodities. Uh, we've seen that, right? The, a lot of people say that China is building up reserves of copper. That's actually what they did during COVID was, initially was they uh, one. And one reason why the price of copper really spiked uh, was because they were hoarding it and building up their stockpiles of it. Uh, the problem is that China is the world's largest consumer by far of these commodities. And any slowdown in the Chinese economy is likely to result in a much weaker global demand for these commodities, and so lower prices. If China held these commodities as reserves, in other words, their reserves would be most valuable when they needed them least, and least value, valuable when they need them the most. That is the opposite of what you want from reserves. All right, I thought that was a good little insight there. Next thread is also, again, from Michael Pettis. And I'll link to these in the show notes. Uh, the, the NDRC wants to, quote, stimulate the vitality of private investment, end quote, in key infrastructure projects, such as the construction of railways, highways, ports, and terminals. This strikes me as a little impractical. I think this is being done partly in the hope that private participation will improve the quality of the investment decision-making process and partly to redress the growing imbalances between public and private sector investment in fixed assets. This is very insightful here. So he's saying that he thinks it's partly being done because obviously communists can't make investment decisions. <laughs> Communists can't do economic calculation. And so he's saying that he thinks it's partly to, uh, because this private participation will improve the quality of the investment decision-making process. Of course, it will. Um, but it's still fake, right? Because they're they're pushing people to invest, over-invest, to mal-invest into things. All right, continuing. Um, SCMP, that's the Southern China Morning Post. It's a state-run um, media thing. Notes, for example, that, quote, in the first three quarters of the year, the gap in fixed asset investment growth continued to widen between the private and public sectors, with private investment expanding by 2%, far behind the 10.6% increase by state-controlled firms. Interesting. So the private investment doesn't want to invest. The state is pushing this forward with a 10% increase in state by state control firms. This new NDRC proposal seems to be formal recognition that public sector investment in infrastructure has not been a great success for the economy. But unfortunately, it suggests that the reason has to do with overinvestment, or not with overinvestment, but rather with poor judgment. 
Of course, poor judgment because they're communists and they can't make economic calculation decisions. So it's not overinvestment, but it's poor judgment. And I agree with them on that, actually. But it's also overinvestment. <laughs> it's both of these things. So, uh, I mean, China is just one big credit bubble. Ready to pop. Okay, continuing on. That strikes me as optimistic. China has invested nearly twice the share of its GDP as the rest of the world, and nearly 50% more than even high investing, rapidly growing, developing countries. Two thirds of that has gone into property and infrastructure. So we know the big property bubble uh, that's being popped right now in China in a slow motion default. Also, this infrastructure. Um, I did a report a couple months ago, I believe, on the on the live stream here about their high speed rail. And it is just a boondoggle. I mean, it's wasting billions of dollars a month or something like that. I mean, it's it's crazy how much how uneconomic this high speed rail is. And also the high speed rail that they're building in was it Kenya? I believe it was in Kenya, uh, in, in some of these African countries, these high speed rails are just uneconomic. They don't pay for themselves. And a lot of people think it's, um, you know, just a matter of build it and they will come. That's what I've been saying about this Belt and Road Initiative for years now. There's a reason why these certain places weren't built up. It's because they're uneconomic to build up with the, with the current technology. It's not because, like, Europeans were racist and trying to keep the, you know, Southeast Asians down or the Africans down. It's because it's uneconomic to build there. That's why there's all this mineral wealth under Afghanistan, and it's still going to stay there because it is uneconomic to get it out of the ground. So it's just crazy how big of a bubble China is, and their answer to this is, you know, let's build some uneconomic projects. What do you think that's going to do for them? It's going to make them crash faster. All right, let's continue. More importantly, for the first 10 to 15 years, the consequence was a faster rise in GDP than in the debt funding investment. In the second 10 to 15 years, however, this debt rose much faster than the country's GDP. Growth couldn't keep pace with the debt funding the investment. This is the diminishing marginal productivity of debt. So for every dollar invested, they used to get $4 back or 5 or 10 and now they're getting less than one uh, or yuan, whatever they're investing. They're getting less. They're, they're diminishing marginal returns. And it's also uneconomic. So maybe you get an initial boost, but it turns out that, you know, in 12 months from now, it's actually a boondoggle and it's just wasting money. So, yeah, all this stuff goes into that. Uh, it's interesting, though. He uses the time frame 10 to 15 years for both of these two halves of this China miracle. Uh, it's a very similar time frame to Japan. So Japan, you know, 50s, 60s, well, no, it was mainly the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And 1990 is the big top in the Nikkei. So 30 years. So if he's using 15 years as two halves, that's 30 years. That's the, that's the next bubble. And that was would be from 1990 to today is 30 years as well. 
And that's one of the kind of frameworks that I've been using is we, they went from a, a Japanese miracle to a China miracle. And that's over. Those days are over. So again, also, um, China is facing a choice. Do they want to go Japan, the route of Japan and just have 20, 30 years of no growth or, and bad demographics. I mean, China's demographics are even worse than Japan's. Um, or are they going to go the route of North Korea? Those were the two options. And it's interesting that I was, you know, um, we were listening to Lay, Lay's Real Talk YouTube channel, and we watched those clips on FedWatch. And she said that China, she thought China was going to turn into a supersized North Korea. So she kind of uh, obviously is on that side of the choice. Um, and that's the way I'm leaning as well because of this communist takeover that she's doing, um, bringing back in hardcore Marxism. So they're going the, the route of North Korea. Anyway, let's continue with this. Um, this suggests that much of that investment wasn't economically justified. That is why I have argued that in recent years, the state sector share of GDP had to rise. The private sector simply wasn't able to participate in that kind of growth. The point is that in recent years, much infrastructure investment was designed very specifically to meet GDP growth targets that exceeded the productivity capacity of the economy. This kind of activity, as Janos Kornai explained, will always necessarily be limited to entities who are able to operate outside of hard budget constraints, i.e. the state sector. Remember, states don't care about costs. They don't care about budget constraints. That's the, the future of China. Uh, the private sector who cannot, will not be able to afford to participate. Inviting them to participate more formally isn't going to change the underlying problem. At best, it means that the private sector will cannibalize overall infrastructure to participate in the most profitable sectors and leave the rest to the state sector. So if there is um, private involvement in this new stimulus scheme, the private companies are going to take the best sectors and the state sectors are going to be with the least economical um industries, the least economical projects. And, you know, of course, when you put the state in charge of the least economical thing, they're just going to mess it up even more. And so um, I think he makes great points here. Of course, I'll link to these in the show notes. Okay, I am done. I'm going to open the mic up for comments, questions, concerns on Telegram. I'll relay it to Twitter spaces. So the mic is open. We don't have a uh, questions, comments, concerns every single day, but uh, we get a couple a week. So while I'm waiting to see if somebody opens or raises their hand over in Telegram, I'll just finish with some admin notes here. Check out bitcoinandmarkets.com for those people listening on Twitter spaces. Thanks for joining. Um, also follow the podcast. Just search for Bitcoin and Markets in any podcast app and you'll find it. Also, we have a Rumble channel, no YouTube channel because they canceled me, but uh, you've Look in the show notes so you can find the, the link for the Rumble channel. Um, what else? What other admin notes do I have? Sign up for the free weekly newsletter. Oh, no Fed Watch this week. We'll be back next Wednesday, 3 p.m. Eastern. 
All right. No hands raised on Telegram. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining me. Have a great day, and I'll see you tomorrow.